Hey, welcome to the 119th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critiquing to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Mina Kimes, the ESPN senior writer and a woman with an ever-expanding journalistic resume. Mina writes for ESPN.com. She appears on ESPN's myriad shows. She hosts a podcast with her dog. Really, with her dog. And here's the thing. I don't actually care about sports TV, debate shows, blah, blah, blah. It's not my cup of tea. But Mina, she can fucking write. And today we're going to dig into her approach to sports journalism, as well as her past as a deep-digging investigative news scribe. She's one of the best in the game, and she's right now on Two Writers, Slinging Yang. All right, so Mina, first of all, you know, I always admit when I do this, when uh, technology tends to screw up, and we just spend 10 minutes doing a technologically uh, technological mishap dance, but here we are. You know, it's, I just think it's interesting. Like, I was brought up with the idea, number one, of don't use I. Like, every now and then you could use I in this story, but generally, don't use I. And I was also brought up sort of, you can't root for a team. Um, this is actually a, a debate I've had with a lot of journalists through the years. Like you can't root for a team. You need to turn your rooting interests off. First way I knew of you was a column you wrote for ESPN uh, back in 2014, where you talked about getting a tattoo with your family members after the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, can you cover a sport and also be sort of an open fan? And um, your response is, is what? <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounded more that sounded more ominous than it was. Just no, I thought your response is what? Hey, what uh, you say, wow. you know? Uh, my response is, wow, you're right. I'm rethinking everything. No, um, my life is meaningless. <laughs> well, I've decided. Well, I'll say so. this. <laughs> yeah, I know. I got to go erase everything I've ever written. Um, I'll say this: a couple of things. One, I actually do think it's kind of weird if you cover a team to be a fan of the team, and that's not. I don't cover a team, right? And I think, if, I think it would be weird for if ESPN had hired me to cover the Seahawks. Um, that would be weird. <laughs> uh, and I, I do have a Seahawks tattoo. I got it before I started working at ESPN. Uh, so. You know, there's really no point in me lying about it at this point. I think, honestly, it would be kind of be more useful if I think more writers were a little bit open and honest about their allegiances. Because it took, for me, personally, not only do I not cover the Seahawks, but when I do analysis of the team, you know, in addition to writing features, I don't really do columns anymore. Uh, I work at ESPN as an analyst. I'm way harder on Seattle than other teams because I'm a, I feel a little bit more pressured to be so. So... I think it's fine. I think that, you know, there are definitely things you have to be attuned to, and I, and I think it is a little bit strange for a beat reporter, though I do think a lot of beat reporters tend to root for their teams or uh, have certain sensitivities that you can kind of read read into. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's not some – I don't think anyone was ever wholly objective. I think we just pretended like we weren't. I actually don't disagree with you, right? Like, I think if we're not rooting for Thank teams – we're rooting for players, right? We're rooting for guys we like or people who have been nice to us or maybe someone from our hometown. So if you're Jewish, we're rooting for the Jewish guys. Or, you know, whatever. Like, we do root. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I think it's an interesting debate. Like, do we just hide that 
and give the complete impression of uh, impartiality, or do we sort of admit it? I think it depends what you're doing, right? Like I said, I, like I just I would think it would be weird for a like a like let's say if, if somebody was covering the Seahawks and they began every column be with like after a loss by, or not a column or a report by saying, well that sucked. Um, you know, I really wish my Seahawks want, like, that'd be very strange. Um, so I, I think it's less about some sort of, a, I don't know, pure idea of impartiality and the way things should be and just thinking about it from the reader's perspective. What actually serves the reader? What is essential to telling a good story? What is essential to conveying degree of honesty and truth? And I think if fandom gets in the way of that, then absolutely it shouldn't be a part of it. If it doesn't, though. I think it's kind of silly to have a rule just to have it. I started covering Major League Baseball, kind of in the way you cover the NFL. I started covering it Sports Illustrated. I would bounce around from team to team. I grew up a New York Mets fan. And I think I got very – like, I didn't even think to root because I saw baseball players up close, and I saw the process up close, and I saw the business of it up close. I think I just stopped caring whether the Mets won or lost. Like, I just – I just didn't care. Yeah. Do you care as much about the Seahawks now as you did 10 years ago? I always start a season. It's funny because the first game of the season was actually my birthday, September 8th. And every year that since I started working at ESPN, I, I kind of start the weekend being like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I care about what's best for my stories. I always root for story first. As I'm sure you do. Like what's actually, you know selfishly best. Or I care about something being exciting or a good, interesting outcome. And then three quarters in, it's a one-score game, and I want to throw up. And I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get rid of that. I hate it. I wish I didn't care. It would make my job a lot easier. Um, but I just do. I, for me, I think a lot of it is coming to this uh, field a little bit later. You know, I was a business journalist uh, until 2014, so I didn't really get that beaten out of me uh, as a young reporter and uh you know, being that I'm not a beat reporter now and I don't write terribly frequently, I suspect it'll never happen. You wrote a piece, uh, it ran in July on ESPN.com, Baker Mayfield isn't afraid of the hype. That was really good. I, uh, your lead is um, a dozen or so kids line up to catch a pass from Baker Mayfield, and one of them is so gut-wrenchingly adorable. I really wonder if he's a plant. It's an absurd thought, but the whole scenario carries a whiff of predetermined charm. The visual of Mayfield playing football with, a hundred, with hundreds of children at his camp in Norman, Oklahoma, is a publicist's dream. And this tiny, blonde, respectful child is straight out of center casting. Uh, and you kind of paint this picture. And you said to me uh, before we started recording, your time with Baker, you did not get very much time with Baker Mayfield. And I actually think that's a, it's a fascinating topic, especially for younger journalists coming up, what to do when you don't get a lot of time or any time with the subject. So how, how did this story... Why were you profiling Baker Mayfield, and how did you sort of go about it? Yeah. Um, it's funny, I think we, we might have been talking about the lead, or I, I may have been thinking of it when I said that, because I, you know, Jeff, writing about football, you do not want to cover a player at their camp surrounded by kids. Yeah. <laughs> that is not the opening scene you want, um, because it is, it does feel fake. It, I mean, it, which is not to say it, it's a real thing, and the player is probably very nice to the kids, but it, it's not inherently interesting uh, it's not that revealing, right? And um, it, it's not just not the way you want to open a story most of the time. But I approached, uh, approached his team about doing a piece on him this summer in the spring, 
And, you know, every year I usually do a profile of an NFL player. Last year was Jalen Ramsey. And I kind of figure out early on the spring who I'm interested in. And I think Mayfield, the reasons are pretty obvious. Um, and I was supposed to spend a lot more time with him <laughs> than I did. So uh, I did get to interview him in, in Cleveland, which is the next section, I think, in the story. But mm-hmm. at the facility, which, again, you know, as an FRI, that's not what we want to do. We don't want to do it in the facility. <laughs> um, I mean, like Jalen Ramsey, I had a ton of time with, uh, for example. We got to go to lunch. We went to Top Golf. That's what you want. Um, so after it became clear I wasn't going to get that. And when I say a scene, it's not – because I want something artificial. It's because for me, I like to just see these guys in the world and see how they move around and see how they interact with people. And um, you can't really get that right at a a facility or on the phone. So once I kind of realized that wasn't happening a couple of weeks before I had to write it, I, uh, I just went to his camp and followed him around a little bit trying to get something. How does this all work? Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a story in Baker Mayfield. You call quarter because it used to be not all that long ago, right? Hey, uh, I want to do a piece on Mike Piazza and the Mets. I call the Mets. I said, yeah, Michael, Michael, meet you for an hour before uh, the game on Thursday against the Phillies. All right, I'll be there. Like, it seemed like there were many significantly fewer hoops and layers you had to go through to get a player. Um, like, how do you do it nowadays? Yeah, it sucks now. <laughs> it's really hard. Um you know, I, usually for me, because it's the, the, the time of year, right? So, like, usually I'm doing these during the summer. You're going through a publicist or an agent, um, less of the team. If it's during the year, and I've done some profiles during the year, uh, during the year, the season, you then the team knows where they are at all times and you're working with them. But for the most part in, in these off seasons, you're going through a camp. And for me, I just kind of – Approach them and say, here's what I want to do. Here's what I need. Um, you know, not really saying necessarily what the story's about or my approach or my angle, just that uh, I want to get to know them a little better and kind of convey to people what it's like to be around them. And um, we no longer, we just put out the last issue of our print magazine. But, you know, you might also let them know we got to have to do a photo shoot. Maybe it's a cover. In this case, it was a cover. Uh, and kind of just convey everything I need up front and uh, pray. That's really what <laughs> you just pray. Is it, um, do they need it less? You know, like there was a time not that long ago when, all right, ESPN is coming. Nina's coming from ESPN yeah. and she wants an hour with you. Oh, of course. Uh, Jeff is coming from Sports Illustrated. He wants to go to dinner with you. Of course. Um, that clearly does not exist in the way it once did. Why do you think that is? Even a few years ago, Jeff, I, my first cover story for the magazine was on Darrell Revis, uh, I want to say 2015, when he had just signed with the Jets, and I had no problems. I had, like, infinite access to him. I got, you know, it was just, like, calling him up. Yeah, sure. What, you want to be in New York? Okay, let's go for go out to dinner. Oh, you want to come to my apartment? Sure. Like, even in that time, and, and he was a little bit less, certainly less famous than Mayfield in some ways, but... um and some of the other guys I've written about. But, yeah, I think it's it's a combination of things. I think it is absolutely the athletes feel that they don't need, um, you know, big profiles the way they used to because they can share their lives with fans through social media. I think attitudes about the press and what's expected of us are changing. I think the people who work for them are also kind of part of that changing attitude in terms of, like, the publicity Machine, um, and 
You know, I, I think it's a, and there's also right things like the Players Tribune. Um, I, I personally believe that a profile, a third person journalistic profile or feature, can change the way people look at a per, an athlete in a way that all of those other things can't. Uh, and I think some athletes believe that or agree, uh, and, and not just athletes, some other people in the machine see that, but I, not everybody does. And it, it is interesting, I think, to try to convey that. It's really interesting that, like, okay, it used to be you walk into a clubhouse and they'd all be reading a newspaper or Sports Illustrated or an ESPN magazine or a Slam magazine. Then it would be they'd be scrolling ESPN.com. They go to the homepage of ESPN.com or Bleach Report. And now it's mainly social media that they're getting stuff from. So it's almost like the impact of having an ESPN.com, like the impact of having an SI cover story died long ago. And I think yeah. the impact of having a long ESPN.com feature, if it hasn't completely faded away, has to a certain degree, it's just weird. It is, it's like everything has come true. What was predicted about the impact of social media on athletes dealing with media has come true in many ways. And there's some wariness that I think is fair because if I do a really long profile on Baker or, um, I don't know, like the Jalen Ramsey story, if you actually read the story, I, most people who read it really liked him afterwards because he comes across as quite genuine and authentic and, uh, like, you know, sensitive and very in touch with his emotions, which are all things I really believed about him. Uh, but, of course, you know, the piece was aggregated and most of the stuff that, got taken out of it was the sort of the more incendiary comments, which he doesn't shy away from. That's what he does. But I think that, you know, that feeling, okay, why, if I'm asking, why would I do this? Well, I'd like people to just know me a little better. And some people will, but most people are just going to see those quotes. And I, I think that's totally fair to be frustrated by. How did Jalen Ramsey uh, react to that? Um, he, he, <laughs> he, he had already put out a lot of incendiary quotes that summer. So I think he was yeah. just kind of, kind of tired by that at that point. Um, but uh, he, he, he has a unique, and I actually think this is, and I wrote this in the piece, this is why he's very good in his position. He has a very unique ability to get over things very quickly. Um, have you had an athlete absolutely ruin you out? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, not after like a big, like a profile type piece. Um, Funny, I had to, when I was a business journalist, I had that experience a lot. Um, hey, what's your worst from your entire yeah. career, right? So you went to Yale, you went to Fortune Small Business, you went to Bloomberg News, and you went to ESPN. Give me your biggest uh, chew out you've endured. Oh, this is a good one. Well, I mean, gosh, it's hard. So, so by the end of my career as a business journalist, I was an investigative reporter and mostly writing really critical things, and I got reamed out a lot. I think my uh, last story – for Business Week was about Eddie Lampert, who's a famous investor, and uh, how he was running Sears into the ground. They didn't like mm -hmm. that one. Um, you know, oh, uh, actually, you know, this is probably it. Before that, I did a story about the company Caterpillar and uh, how the CEO was really anti-labor, and the publicist, the, their communications guy, was really not not thrilled with me. Do you get the phone call with the reaming out for ten minutes? Have you have you actually had the you know, oh yeah. I um I don't know if I did it with this incident, but back when I again used to do these kinds of stories, uh, I, I occasionally would just set the phone down and just let the person go. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, it's it's like the real life kind of when you hit mute on Twitter, which I do all the time. Um, but 
Yeah, I, it doesn't happen as much anymore, I think. Because um, even like seeing like, you know, Ramsey or like Mayfield, there were a couple comments in there. They, It's not my story they're angry about. It's the fact that one quote is being passed around. And I think for the most part, um, people understand that's not your fault. Right. Is it possible when, you, when you're when you doing a Baker Mayfield story and there have now been, whatever, 500 uh, Baker Mayfield stories written dating back to his college mm-hmm. career, is it possible to truly, truly, truly at this point get something unique that no one else has read before? I think it is, and I think that's why you ideally want to spend time with them. It's not about necessarily the things they'll say. It's about the things you'll see, right? Um, for me, I think a lot of the novel, when you're, trying to write something new about a person who's been written about a lot, um, you really want the opportunity to to watch them and how they interact with people and then try to come away with that with a better, under, like a new understanding. Like I, the Revis is a good example, by the way. I felt like, I remember I was absolutely devastated that summer because there was a big profile of him before mine came out. So I got beat. And, you know, he was pretty famous at that point. He had already been written about quite a bit. Um, but when I, I ended up spending time with him, he did all these little weird things. <laughs> like he, he I wrote about this in the piece. We went to, we were in his apartment, and, and I really like him. He's one of the athletes I've written about, I think, that I've liked more, mm-hmm. most. And um, anyways, he had this thing where he had, had a blanket on his lap, and he, like, kind of wrapped it around himself like a babushka so that only his eyes were looking at me. It was so freaking weird and in that moment I kind of had this I, I went into the story thinking I was going to write about oh he's an expert negotiator draw Revis he's so smart and I had this epiphany no he's just a weirdo like he really doesn't care about how you know he's like an introvert he doesn't care about how other people view him and that ended up being the, the kind of the thesis of the story and it's something I would not have been able to capture unless I just spent time with him and watched kind of his movements and, and his actions wow that's awesome I actually um when you can find, like I was saying, I wrote a biography of Walter Payton, and I wrote a biography of Roger Clemens, two of my books. And um, Roger Clemens was one of those miserable experiences, and Walter Payton was one of the best. And the only, the main difference between the two is Roger Clemens had no curiosity and self-awareness whatsoever, and Walter Payton was this bundle of curiosity and yeah. self-awareness. And I just think when you find those athletes who are truly aware, who are inside, you know, like in on the joke of it all, it's absolutely yeah. wrong. Yeah, uh, it's tough. I mean, some sometimes you go to profile an athlete, and some, there's sometimes there's so much there, and you're you're surprised, and sometimes there's not a lot there. And I can there's profiles I've done like that too, where you know there's more of an onus on you to just kind of interpret. Like the the Baker Mayfield profile, I thought it was really well done. I love actually wrote here uh, described him. You're like strolling into the Browns practice uh, facility on a chilly April afternoon. Dressed unassumingly in gray sweats, his bushy off-season beard shaking like a turkey's waddle while he laughs. Whenever Mayfield enters a space, he has a way of connecting with everyone in his path that reminds me of a comment Coach Hugh Jackson made last spring comparing Mayfield to the Pied Piper. That's really, really good. And I think in a way, like tell me if I'm wrong, Baker Mayfield doesn't seem that interesting of a human being. He seems like a quarterback who's really sort of happy with his fame and the way things are going in life. Um, I think the way he relates to other people is interesting, and that's why I ended up kind of, like, focusing on that, right? Like, the fact that he has this kind of weird Svengali-like charisma. Um, I don't think necessarily his views on the world are something I want to get into, right, in great depth or, or um, 
sort of there's not like that level of perhaps introspection that is what I would want to make the focus of the piece. But I, you know, like the guy walks into a room and it is really amazing the effect it has on people. And I, I really, and in part, that's partially why the way I was hoping to see him more in the world, because even in that facility, when I first met him, I was like, Holy shit. Like everyone, this guy walks by, it's like a flower in the sun or something. I mean, it's, it's kind of remarkable, but um, you know, I, I always find stuff like, with these people, it's it's just trying to figure out what's really interesting about them, and that's what I found interesting about him. But it's always different between every player. Do you feel like everybody has something interesting about them? I do. Yeah. I mean, I think a guy who I would put into category of maybe again not being like the biggest talker was Von Miller, who I wrote about a couple summers ago uh, when he was negotiating his long-term deal, and we went fishing, and he was just really sweet and like he's just like a sweet, joyful guy, right? He is what he seems. And that's not really that interesting. I mean, it's, it's lovely, but it, this is one of those things where you have the man sitting around someone. We're in the car as, again, he, Adam Schefter had just broken the news of the, the Broncos. They'd offered him like a zillion dollars. They had turned it down, right? And so people who are on Twitter calling him greedy and this and that. They just want a Super Bowl. And I, because I got to sit next to him in the car, I saw him pull out his phone right after the news broke. And type, imagine Von Miller, type his own name into Twitter and search to see what people were saying about him. And it was so, like, tragic and affecting. Oh, man. Um, but those are things you don't get to see if you're not around someone. I, I always tell my students, it's about finding the tiny details and yeah. and seeing something bigger in them. Like seeing Von Miller search for his name on Twitter is a very tiny little detail that tells you a ton about him. I was so affected by it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he just really like him. Yeah, I totally get that, actually. The vulnerability of, like, this guy and, like, yeah. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with Grandma Sandy on behalf of 503 Sports. So, Grandma Sandy, thanks for recording this ad for my podcast, Two Riders Slinging Yang. Two nighters fighting pain? No, 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 no. Two riders slinging yang. What's a blang? Yang. I once had a friend named Jane. She had funny breath, like chopped liver. Yang. I love oyster crackers. No, it's a podcast, Two Riders Slinging Yang, and we're sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit 503-sports.com for more information. Are they coming over? Who? The Yangs. Yeah, and they're bringing chopped liver. Oh, goody. You, uh, I asked you for your two favorite pieces. There are two pieces that stood out to you. The other one you sent me um, with the uncomfortable reality of Tyreek Hill's success. Ran uh, January 11, 2017. You wrote, um, one of the most jaw-dropping plays I witnessed this season happened in late November during a, Chiefs, uh, sun, during a Sunday night game between Kansas City and Denver. Halfway through the second quarter, the Chiefs, whose lurching offense had yet to score, sent rookie wide receiver Tyreek Hill out to return a kick. As the ball soared, the ball soared past the 15-yard line, no back paddle, caught it, and sliced across the field, then turned the corner and accelerated, leaving a throng of defenders gasping in his wake. Um, and then, I mean, you know, you know, the camera cut to Hill, who was breathing heavily on the bench, smiling in the way that rookies do sometimes, overjoyed, surprised, and more than a little relieved. And you say when Michelle Tavoy was finished, Tariko explained that when Chiefs General Manager Don, John Dorsey chose Hill, Edder anticipated a backlash in Kansas City, uh, you know, and, and you go into sort of Tyreek Hill's, you know, really troubled history. And the thing you did freaking, I mean, just like this really meticulous, non-judgmental sort of evaluation of Tyreek Hill's place in the NFL. Why'd you write it? So I wasn't doing columns as much 
at this point. You know, when I came into Houston, I was doing more of those kind of little columns in the first person and that kind of thing. And, and at this point, I was doing mostly just features, but um, and but I was also doing more NFL analysis, right? And so Hill was this breakout player that year, and all season long, I just had no idea how to talk about him. And I was, and I felt like no one else did either because mm-hmm. of his history. And I think by the end of the season, I kind of wanted to account for that or, or just sort of work through that difficulty and that challenge. And it had been three years since the Ray Rice incident um, when Gush was 2014. And I was just kind of struck by how little had been resolved since then. So I wanted to sort of work through what not just my own feelings on, but I think what I, what I thought and I, I think is true, just how everyone else still, everyone around the league, the people who covered it, the people inside it still felt extremely confused. Yeah. You wrote, um, while I don't object to Tyreek Hill finding work in the NFL, I believe that Oklahoma State was right to release him when it did. I believe Oklahoma should have cut Jobson from the team after he punched a female student and that Greg Hardy has no place in football. I, I hold these beliefs even though I agree with the assessment of zero tolerance and I haven't figured out how to reconcile them. What I really liked about it is sometimes it's just no answer. And it seems like in modern journalism, we all, everyone has to have their hot take and their, their we need to do this or we need to do that or this is right or this is wrong. And you sort of just laid it out there that there's really no great answer to this problem. It's just really messed up. I wish I could do that on TV more, which is yeah. you know, half of my job now. But it's really, And sometimes I try. And um, I, I've, Jeff, I've done a first take a few times, and I found out that some of the people who worked on this show joked that I would respond to every – in the morning you go over kind of like the stories and like, should the Cowboys pay Dak Prescott – and they would joke that every time I was on the show, I'd just say, well, you really can't, like, come to a, a take on this. And uh, it maybe didn't make for the best television, but, you know, I think it's often true. And, and I think that's what I appreciated with this story was just having the opportunity to actually say that. Right. Are you, you're an interesting case because you're, uh, you have a podcast that's really popular uh, about football. You do a lot of TV. You did uh, Rams color commentating in the preseason. What started as a pretty traditional journalistic path of writing has really branched out. And I wonder, do you, do you feel like in 2019 that is the way of survival? Can you just be a writer anymore, or is that sort of a dead idea? I think you can, but not in the same way um, as before, obviously. <laughs> um, I think it's harder than ever to have a beat. Uh, obviously the, the, the bar is much higher, right? And there's fewer, I guess, reporters covering individual teams. Um, but I, I, th- I think you just have to, you have to do more typically. Um, I, I feel like for me, you know, doing all the the radio and television that I do, it, it hasn't been so like a career. Like, okay, well, I have to do more to stay relevant. I actually just really love doing those things. I mean, talking like football is my favorite sport. It has been my whole life, and doing analysis of it, not just writing like long form features. It's not a happy accident. It's a dream. So, I think if you truly actually love audio and television are willing to put in the work and it is a lot of work, then I, I think it makes sense, but it's not like, you know, everyone has to be a quote unquote multi-platform. You had to give up either writing or, um, 
you know, multimedia, TV, podcasts, et cetera, what would you do? Well, I am um, very lucky that I haven't had to make that decision. <laughs> That's a cop-out answer. Yeah, I know. I a cop-out answer. Yeah. <laughs> That, it's true. I, I, I mean, I feel I, I, there are things I have cut things out. Like I, I had a radio show and I stopped doing it. So I, I do have to kind of make these priority assessments constantly. You wrote a story in 2012 for, uh, for Fortune called Bad to the Bone, a medical horror story. That was a deep cut. It's great. I mean, <laughs> so, and it's really interesting. See, there, I kept thinking about this. Like, in fact, before I ask you about this story, like you wrote these Really deep, hardcore, introspective, detailed, heavily reported uh, business stories um, that obviously made a lot of impact. Not, I'm not talking about in, in an entertainment way. I mean, literally, literal impact. Um, and then you jump to sports. Do you ever miss the seriousness of it? Are you ever like, ugh, climate change is going on. Why do I care about the Seahawks? Or this company is blah, blah, causing cancer. Why do I care about... Like, are there moments when you yeah. miss the seriousness of your past life? Um, I miss the business stuff when I watch Succession. Because <laughs> it just reminds me of, did you watch Succession? No, but I know about Succession. Oh, I mean, so I good. Yeah. Or like billions. I don't know. I miss, I miss because I have some expertise and like knowledge and, and it kind of, I'm like, oh man, I miss it. But um, as, as far as like the, the seriousness of the subject matter and, and that kind of thing, I think this actually comes up a lot. So, so one, not really, but it comes up a lot when we talk about and this is something that is pretty topical in my workplace. Like, oh, don't you want to like tweet about politics? And and I kind of, for me, feel like, well, I get frustrated when I feel like I could be contributing something really new here and bring something to the table that's not being brought to the table. And it's like how I feel if, um, honestly, that's actually how I felt about the Tyreek Hill story. I felt like no one is saying this and I can say this and, and if I don't have that ability, that it hurts. I don't feel that way about business right now. Like, I don't feel like the world needs, I don't know. I just don't feel like I, there's something I could bring to the table that's so different or fresh or excellent. Um, so it, it's really not that frustrating for me, to be honest. Um, I sports, so sometimes what I do find frustrating is like, it, it's, well, the access thing, which we discussed, I do find that frustrating. And then I think it can be really, really hard to tell news stories because there's so much, so many of us, right? And they're so, we're all often covering the same things. And that I find a little bit tiresome. But no, I, I don't miss, I don't miss uh, getting yelled at by lawyers. Not really, no. I actually always used to say, I always prefer covering Tigers, Twins, game 89, both, game, both teams like seven and a half games out of first compared to the playoffs. Like, I always like the intimacy of an empty locker room, even if the game wasn't that important, compared to a huge game and I'm surrounded by 300 of my closest competitors. Oh, that's the worst, yeah. Oh, I hate covering the Super Bowl. I do the Super Bowl for us, and I hate trying to think about, oh, what am I going to write about? <laughs> Is the Super Bowl not an enjoyable experience for you? Um, no, I love it. I mean, I'm so maybe this guy, I've told this very horrible, but like I have trouble restraining myself. This is really great game. Like I, this, the story I, I've told is being at the last, not the last year, but the prior one that New England, uh, Philadelphia and jumping and screaming during Philly special and being surrounded by Patriots beat reporters because I couldn't help myself because I just love football so much. And it was such a cool thing and it was so close to me. Um, so I, I still love the actual football side of it, especially, you know, when some really high level stuff happens, but covering it is not fun. Wait, so when you're, 
You're uh, you're jumping. You're you're screaming in excitement. You're in the press box or some press box. Or does anyone tell you to shut up or how does that go? No, but you you know, <laughs> I've never been never been told to shut up. But um, it, you know, do you know what Jason Reed is? He works for the Undefeated. Yeah, of course. So really, we always end up sitting next to each other at the Super Bowls, and I think it was. Not only this one, but the year before, which was Patriots Atlanta, right? Which was insane. And as all that stuff was, I think it was maybe when Edelman made that crazy catch, him and I, and he's been covering sports for a lot longer than I am, both grabbed each other to keep each other from screaming because it was so crazy. I, don't, I, I hope I never lose that. I, I, I mean, I understand it, it's not cheering for any team. It's just excitement over the game, and I still experience that. It's so interesting. It's actually really it's really fascinating because like, I feel like there was a point in my career where if I were sitting next to you and you did that, I would be like, you fucking kidding me. But then when you describe it and it's just a joy of the game in a way, you can certainly make the argument that we all should have that. Like why else are we covering sports if we don't derive joy from it? So well, it would be weird if it was a Patriots beat reporter, right? He sure. jumped up and went, yeah. <laughs> right. So maybe that cuts to our discussion at the beginning, which is, about, you know, when we, when we talk about fandom and I, I think your role in the ecosystem does actually matter. Oh, wait, so I want to ask you about Bad to the Bone. You wrote oh, this sure. story, 2012, Fortune Magazine, Bad to the Bone, a medical horror story. I'll refresh your memory. On November 16th, 2011, Georgia Badley, a 70-year-old woman living near Salt Lake City, received a shocking call from a special agent at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The agent told her that the government had come across new information about her mother's death. She was speechless. Eight years before, the 83-year-old mother, Barbara Marcelino, had unexpectedly died during spine surgery. At the time, Badly didn't question what had happened. Surgery had always been risky for women of that age. She was horrified when the agent told her that the surgeon had injected bone cement into her mother's spine and that the product, which was not approved for that use, may have played a role in her death. And it's this really freaking crazy, heartbreaking, horrifying story um, you know, about illegal chemicals and sort of people knowing that these harmful chemicals are being spread into people's bodies. Uh, I don't know, did this story, was this just another story to you or did it make an impact? No, this was, this story took a really, really long time to do. Um, and so it definitely wasn't another, it was a, a labor of like six months or something. Um, and, you know, it started when, so I was already doing investigative stories for Fortune, and I'd seen a post somewhere. I don't know. I used to do a lot of, like, healthcare investigations, and somebody had said, hey, you should look at this lawsuit, this um, not lawsuit, the, um, gosh, it was a federal filing, and it talks about this case and the identities of the people are anonymous, but one of them is clearly the CEO of the company, and he got and it's very rare for executives to go to prison for doing what the four executives who did here did, but nothing happened to the CEO. It was a very, very wealthy and very influential donor. So that kind of started it, and I started asking people about him and digging into it and ended up meeting the families um, whose grandparents and, and mothers, and, and they had died and they had no idea why, and... Um, yeah, it, just, it was kind of one of those things where one thing leads to another and it's sort of um, you go down a rabbit hole. And I actually hadn't thought of it for about the story for a really long time. But then I want to say like two or three years ago, I was doing a, a reading, a sports thing 
And this young man came up to me and it turned out his grandfather died and was killed because of this cement. And he had been waiting to meet me for many years and it was a really surreal moment. Um, Yeah, so the story means a lot to me. You're doing that kind of reporting. How's it affect you as a sports writer? I I, I still try to apply the same rigor to the things that I do, um, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. You know what? This is going to sound weird, but it kind of makes it easy. I I don't... I'm really not intimidated by any of the athletes I write about. <laughs> or, and honestly, I, I I don't feel like I kind of elevate them in a way that it would make my job a lot harder to do. I just really see them as normal people, and I'm happy to tell their stories. But, you know, I wrote about things that were life and death. So if I don't get an extra four hours with someone, or he, or not four hours, an hour, and... <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of rude to me. It just, like, it doesn't hit really that hard, if that makes sense. Are you completely and totally fine, like, randomly calling people? No nervousness? You know, someone slamming a door in your face, no nervousness? Someone... Oh, no, I'm so nervous. I That was the thing. Even when I was doing these, like, hardcore stories, I still used to get so nervous making these. I used to have to spend all day working up the courage to make yeah. a call. Um, and that's never changed for me. It's a, a confrontational call. You know what's so funny? It really is. Is um, My career, much of my career, I've spent knocking on doors, making uncomfortable calls, call, trying to reach out to people who I know don't want to talk to me. And I've had my wife, I've had my parents, I've had my friends say, How, you must be so fearless. And I'm always like, kind of like you just said, I'm never fearless. I always hate, I hate rejection. I hate the guy telling me to fuck off and I hate the freaking door being slammed in my face. I never get over that. You just, somehow or another, you just push your way through it, don't you? Yeah, you know, I think I was on the investigative team at Bloomberg and then with that portion, I worked a lot of my theater partners and I actually felt like there was some, a couple of really discreet personality types. There were kind of extreme empaths <laughs> and people were really sensitive. And then there were these like stone cold killers who just did not care at all. Um, and you can do it both ways I found, but uh, you don't have to be one way or the other. I envy, I would say I used to cover, when I was covering baseball, you go to New York city and the Yankee beat writers were the biggest <laughs> badasses of all time. And they wouldn't care. They just walk up to guys. And if the guy was a dirt and they tell him to fuck off and they'd walk away. Like, I want that, and I don't have it, and I've wanted it for years, and I just don't have it. I want to be a badass, but I'm not a badass. Me neither, so I'm firmly in your camp. Yeah. Let me ask you a final question. Um, you asked me in the magazine, and the death of, the death of, you just view it as sort of, well, this is kind of Prince of Dead, and this is inevitable. Do you, is there sadness to you about it, or is it just his? You know, there is, um, I think, nothing really changes for a lot of us, quite frankly, but... Um, not having the print product, it, one, it's it's sad from, I, you know, I think athletes genuinely liked it, and it kind of helped, <laughs> so that's gone. But um, it's funny, I posted a picture, Jeff, of my mom before a soccer game, giving, like, a thumbs up. She's a very adorable Korean woman and in her 70s, and, and then instantly regretted it because people noticed that she had framed all of my magazine covers. <laughs> oh, my God. That's <laughs> the dorkiest thing and people were like wait is that and I was like oh no I can't take it down now it's so embarrassing including like really old ones and in any case um, so you know I think that that not having that anymore it's going to hit at some point Um, I don't I honestly, like I, I like most people read everything digitally. So I think, from a reader's perspective, I can't imagine 
the experience is going to be that different, but um, it still feels like the end of an era nonetheless. I just want to say our moms are totally different because my mom is a very strong adherent to do not brag about anything your kids do because people will take it the wrong way. So mm. someone could be like, my Joey just got a job at the pizza place or whatever, at the law firm, whatever. And my mom would just nod and then she'll brag to me later how she didn't brag about her kids. <laughs> I think that's a, it's a very unique approach to parenting. Yeah, I, I, my mom watches everything I do, whether it's like a five-minute hit on a sports center or, you know, a two-hour show, and she meticulously documents it all, so it's a little different. Funny. You don't sound like you're kind of living your dream. Am I right? It sounds like you, are, you have a genuinely happy professional career. Is that safe to say? I, yeah, I think the only exception is um, if I'm – Working a bunch of different jobs. If I'm if I'm traveling a ton, I can get a little bit exhausted by that. And, and look, I the downside of what we sort of spoke about earlier, that access issue and how that's evolving, that can cause a lot of. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I I was very chill. I was like, oh, and then I just went to the camp, and no big deal. But it's not chill in the moment at all, as I'm sure you know. Let me ask you one more question. Let's say Baker Mayfield had been like, yeah, no access. You can, I mean, whatever. You can sit on my press conferences, but I don't want to. I don't, I don't like ESPN, blah, blah, blah. Do you still do the story? Uh, well, that brings us full circle to something I told you, I think, in our first attempt at recording. <laughs> so it's not going to make it, so I'll explain to people. Uh, I, I explained that I don't drive. I just learned how to drive recently. And I made fun of you. As an adult. And I rented a car for the first time at age 33. And the reason I rented a car, Jeff, was because I was supposed to do an access profile on Zion Williamson. And access was pulled uh, the night before, which was delightful. So uh, ESPN said, well, we would like you to do something anyway. So I ended up going to um, the first round of the NCAA tournament in Columbia, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. and thinking, okay, well, he's from South Carolina. Maybe I can go to his hometown. I don't know. I'll figure something out. Well, it turns out his hometown, South Carolina, is very big, and the hometown was over two hours away. And uh, usually I just take Ubers everywhere, but it seemed a little irresponsible to do that much Ubering. So I rented, I forced myself to rent a car. It ended up being quite a gift because I, I went to his high school, started asking around, do you know Zion Williamson? Do you know anyone who knows Zion Williamson? Somebody directed me to a 80 uh, year old man who had retired. He used to teach there. And I'm driving to his house then in my car, my rental, which I just learned how to drive and um, <laughs> call him. And I said, Hey, and he said, well, he's like, I watch you every day. He's like, I watch, Around the Horn is my favorite show. Sure, I'll talk to you. I'm like, oh, my gosh, thank you. So I go into his house, and it turns out um, it was his, Zion Williamson's poetry teacher. Wow. And uh, he told the most beautiful stories about what a sensitive writer Zion was and how he was, like, one of his favorite students ever, and he had saved a piece of his writing, and it was this, like, lovely experience. Um, and it never would have happened if I hadn't rented a car for the first time. There you go. You, you waited all these years to get that uh, to get that ability, and now it's paying off. It's yeah, close. so you can do a ride around if you're willing to drive. Yeah, that's amazing. Wait, I want to ask one more thing. Do okay. you feel like we are in the age now where uh, women sports writers do not have to face the "what do you know? You're just a woman" thing, or is that story pronounced thing that you feel? I, I think yeah. it plays a much bigger role in my work as an analyst than as a features writer. Interesting. How so? Yeah. Like, what does she know? Um, yeah, it totally still happens. <laughs> it's, an it's horrible. Uh, I get awful emails. And, I mean, I, it's funny. People are like, well, you dunk on people. I'm like, I 
show you one three hundredth of the crap I get because um, it's just uh, you know I don't want to dwell on it. But as a writer, no, I don't find that it causes as many issues these days. I mean, because as a writer, we're it's less about you know your knowledge or how much. And honestly, if you're trying to show off your knowledge, you're probably not doing a good job. It's more about just being curious and kind and open-minded and prepared. But as an analyst, I think it's very different. I just think it's really funny how people think there's certain men who think that these, these games are way too complicated for your woman brain and that you couldn't possibly understand um, a slant route into the end. Like, we're not talking rocket science here. It's stupid football. It's not that hard. <laughs> Most of the, I guess, negativity is not actually about the content of what I'm saying. It's, well, you know, boy, looks. look, tone, presence. It's, yeah, so... Ugh. Yeah, Sorry, you didn't want to end on a depressing note. No, it's all right. It's athletes are great. If you want to end on a positive note, I, I, very, I rarely have issues with actual athletes. Right. It is interesting because they have been raised in a much more enlightened time period. I think you definitely see the yeah. impact walking into a locker room nowadays compared to 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. I always tell people, uh, you know, a football player from the South, he, his mom probably knows more about football than any, anyone he's right. ever met. So right. Yeah, they've been around women who know the game. Right. Uh, well, Lena, I, I, uh, I'm glad we did this. I really appreciate you, uh, you taking the time to chat here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I haven't thought about some of these stories in a while. I had a good time. I want to thank today's guest, Mina Kimes, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Mina on Twitter at Mina Kimes and listen to her pod, The Mina Kimes Show, featuring Lenny on Apple Pods. And this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the kick-ass MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.